This is Dr. James Crosby, Head of Sustainability at Advantage Utilities. I'd like to ask, could your organisation be more of an energy sector hero? Are you interested in improving your sustainability as a business? Well, now you can obtain the expert view and guidance on renewable energy solutions, on-site generation, carbon accounting, and sophisticated grid energy purchasing options through Advantage Utilities. Our team of experts use the latest tools to better analyse, track and reduce your organisation's energy usage and carbon emissions. To find out how Advantage Utilities can become your one-stop shop for all your energy and sustainability needs, please visit www.advantageutilities.com or give one of our passionate and friendly team a call on 0208-131-4747. Hi there and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. This week I am joined by James Fleming. James is an incredible CEO at The Power Within Training. James, would you like to introduce yourself please? Hi, absolutely Michelle. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, so as you said, my name is James Fleming. I am the Managing Director and CEO of the Power Within Training and Development. We're a UK-based training and development company focused on motivational intelligence, which is very unique to the market. And we have offices in Glasgow and an office in London, but we have presence all over the UK, including up there in Aberdeen. We've got a, a director of business development for the northeast of Scotland based up in Aberdeen. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. By the way, I've also spent, I spent a long time in oil and gas. So I was over, I think, 20 years um, in oil and gas myself. So I know Aberdeen and the oil and gas industry pretty well. I was going to ask you, how did you get started in the energy sector? By default, I didn't actually ever plan on moving to oil and gas. I worked for a company called Intel Pentium Processors over in Dublin, well, just outside Dublin, a place called County Kildare. I was living in Dublin and I'd been there for a few years and I was kind of getting a bit bored being stuck in a factory environment. I'm just not a kind of factory kind of guy. I, I like to be out and spread my wings and, and meet people. And, I, and I, I remember posting my CV on a kind of business website thing. And I don't remember ever actually applying for any jobs. But anyway, long story short, I got a phone call. It was the 18th of December, 20, sorry, 1999. I got a phone call from a company called Baker Hughes. Mm-hmm. And they'd said, look, we've got a copy of your CV. We would like to invite you for an interview. The interviews in a, a few days' time. So I think the interview was like on the 21st of December. So packed all my stuff, jumped on a flight, flew across to Glasgow. The, the interview was in Glasgow at the time. Flew across to Glasgow and I met them in the, the Thistle Hotel in Glasgow, which is now the Double Tree Hilton in Glasgow City Centre. So I remember going along to this suite in the, in the hotel and there were these two gentlemen sitting in this room and they basically said, look, we're going to play a video and I want you to watch the video and then can you tell me what your thoughts are? So they played this video and it was all about centrifugal motors and mechanical electronics. 
And luckily that was something that I had studied. So we had this kind of really in-depth conversation about this and that, and I was asking them questions all about the video. And at the end of the questions, we didn't even get into the interview. They basically says to me, you're hired. You, you start in, in January. However, you've got to be through a drugs test and all the usual stuff first. And I'm thinking, have I been a bad boy or have I not? <laughs> anyway, long story short, I went along to did all the, te- the drug tests and everything like that. I started on the, I think it was the 8th or 9th of January 2020 in the oil and gas industry. And that was that was how I ended up in oil and gas as an engineer. I was a field engineer. Okay, interesting. So what made you decide to change from the oil and gas industry to, to set up on your own? I, I love the oil and gas industry and I absolutely love working uh, with Baker Hughes. I spent most of my career with Baker Hughes. Um, I still have a, a, you know, quite an affinity to the company, even though they've changed a lot. But I knew that if for my own growth, that I had to kind of move around, I had to learn other ways of doing things. Anyway, let me answer the question. I'm going to go over a total tangent there. What made me leave the oil and gas? I, as part of my own development, I was moved. I was in a field engineer, so engineering. I then moved into field, you know, kind of junior management and then moved into senior management all with the same company and part of my own development so i was what they called a high potential employee and part of my own development was to take me out of operations and move me into another um role so I, they moved me into an hr role and it was talent management and career development and I, I, I went in kicking and screaming. I really didn't want to do it. I thought, what the hell do I know about talent management, career development? Well, I don't know nothing about any of those things. I'm an operations guy. And I thought I was pretty good at it. And I remember going on this, this the, 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 you know, starting this position. And I absolutely loved it. I loved working with people. I loved sitting down with people and trying to understand, you know, where they want to go in their career and what drives them in life and why do they do what they do, kind of what you asked me, and mm. and it helps steer their career. So rather than being stagnant, I would say, have you thought about this and what about that? And did you know? And it all kind of happened at the same time, Michelle, as the Aconda incident, you know, the, the one where the well blew up in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. There was a lot, of, a lot going on around competencies, so mm-hmm. that kind of drove that whole, you know, have people get the right qualifications, are they are they the right experience? And um, so that was that was the driving force. I did that for two years and I was moved back to operations. And I think that was back in 2013. And I think from that moment on, I was never really happy. I didn't enjoy operations the way I used to. And it kind of started the little bug in my head about, you know, what would it be like to do other things? You know, what would it like to be, you know, working for other companies? You know, how does other people do it? And I think that kind of started it. And I think I was never really happy after that. And then obviously you add on the 2014, 15 and 16 and the horrendous mess that oil and gas went through with dropping oil prices. And I, I, I basically spent, you know, the next two and a half, three years paying off people you know, letting people go in the industry, and it was horrible, you know, friends, family, and I moved back to Aberdeen with Weatherford, I was working for Weatherford at the time, 
and I just didn't like the way the industry was going. So I decided to pack my bags and start my own company in, in leadership development. So you were originally an engineer and you were originally a field engineer. Did you find your skills transferable from being a field engineer, being a hands-on field engineer and moving into operations and training. How did you find your skills? Were this transferable? How did you end up doing that? Because that is quite an unusual career development. I, I think I've not heard of anybody going from a field engineer going to moving into training. So the, I think the easiest way to answer that is yes and no. No, because I hadn't a clue what I was doing initially, but yes, because of the transferable. So remember, when I went into the kind of role of, 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 of HR, you're dealing with, particularly in oil and gas, you're dealing with technical people most of the time. Yeah. So I understood what it was like to be in the other side. So I understood what it was like for HR, you know, with policies and procedures and care development plans. And, and you just kept, when I was in, in operation, I always used to think, what does all this actually mean? You know, it was almost like it was a, 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 a pain to have to implement it, you know? So I just thought, you know what? I, I, I was I was able to bridge the gap because I, I have a very, very strong mindset of, if I don't know, I'll find out. So so I, the, the answer is no, initially not. I, I, no, I didn't. But I just embraced it. You know, I, I looked around at the other people and I thought, well, I've got skills that they don't have. So I learned from them around the HR and the people person thing. And I put my skills and my talents into the role. And I found that coming from operations into HR was actually a blessing because other HR people couldn't understand why they had so, such a pushback from engineering and operations. Whereas I could, I don't know if that helped answer the question. I was going to ask you a really controversial question, actually. Go for it. Go for it. Do you think coming from an engineering background, is it easier to hire engineers as opposed to if you didn't have any engineering background at all? So the problem is the hiring, right? Uh -huh. Now, think about it this way. I think this is the easiest way to describe it. When we hire we are always looking for someone who has the best skills. Yeah. Yeah. However, skills, it's not skills that make people successful in their roles. Skills can be learned. Uh -huh. It's attitude that makes people. Who are they? Who do they surround themselves with? What kind of person are they? That's what makes somebody successful in a role. You know, the type of character that they have, not the skills. And, and, and yet, and yet, 99.9% .9 of people get filtered out at the skill stage. They don't have the skills for this role rather than actually sitting down and saying, well, who are you? Who's your three best friends? What do you do? What's life all about? Because that's, in my opinion, you know, and, and obviously we hire a lot, is for me it's always attitude that trumps skills because I can teach them the skills. They can learn the skills. You know, so so I think, I, I don't know if I've answered the question, but I think that we are very skills driven when it comes to hiring, when really we should be attitude driven. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have the skills, because if I've got two people and let's say one person's got, you know, a, a, a master's degree in, you know, electrical engineering and mm -hmm. one person's got an HNC or an HND 
in electrical engineering. And I interviewed them, and one person's attitude and, and enthusiasm and understanding of my company and who we are and what we do, I would hire them all day long versus the, the, the higher education. So I think we need to get out of the mindset of the skills hiring, because, I mean, of course we need skills. I get that. But we, we always put skills way ahead of attitude, characteristics, who they are. And I think that's a mistake. I think so too, because a lot of the people's they have their they have a lot of emphasis on their CV where they have to highlight every school and everything that they've done. Whereas I think your ex- skills and experience are only kind of going to carry you so far. I think it's everything else that you do and how who you are and how you present yourself is going to get you much further and probably the job that maybe a really qualified person is not going to get. Here's a story for you. Now, mm-hmm. remember, going back operations and I moved into HR. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was, I was based in Dubai at the time and we had a huge drive to bring in new engineers, new fresh blood from university. Now, generally what happens is we get your pile of CVs, you look through them, you get the highest GPA average, you bring them in, you interview them, and you give them a job. We didn't do that. What we did is we created a thing called the Baker Hughes Engineering Experience, and it was two days. So we invited all engineers along to a hotel. We gave them competency tests. We gave them presentation tests. We interviewed them. We did team building skills. So we hired based on characteristic and attitude. Now, believe it or not, some of the best hires we hired as engineers, and it was over a year and a half period, I hired personally, we hired something like 100 engineers just over that period, brand new graduates. The best were always female engineers. The, The cream of the crop were generally always female engineers. They just had that people skill. They had that empathy where, where the young, young, young men were very me, me, me driven, you know, and, and they weren't always great in teamwork. Um, so it was a really strange, you know, kind of divide. So I think we hired, you know, we hired, I think, 30 or 40% of them were females during that process because they were, they just were brilliant, you know, because they've always had to fight harder to get to the same point. That's what I was so just going to so say. they had real drive. Yeah, I was going to wait to just say that to you. I think females have more of a drive to, because they feel like they have to prove more, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah, that was, a, that was a brilliant experience. And that's something that, that we do in our company. We don't hire. We all, we interview. So we always have to have somebody who has a certain level of skills, particularly for hiring for a specific role. Let's say it's a sales role. They need to have some form of sales, particularly if it's a senior role. They have some form of background. But we we put everyone through a three-stage interview. So first stage, they've got to do a video interview. Why them? Why the company? The second one is a face-to-face interview. Mm -hmm. And then they've got to present my company to, as if I'm a client or a customer Mm -hmm. on a particular product. So I tell them the product. I give them all the information, all the links. And they need to go away, research the company and present it back to me as if I'm the customer. And then the last one is a phone interview. Again, as if I'm a client or a customer and I've got a problem or an issue. And that's how we filter it out. So the people who generally get to the final interview stage have went through two pretty grueling 
Because most people, first of all, they wouldn't do a video interview. They just refute the job. They'll just, oh, I'll look for an easier job. I don't want those kind of people. Wrong attitude. Then they eventually get to the, the, the live Zoom video. So they're doing a presentation to me live on Zoom as if I'm the customer. That shows me if they've went and done their homework. Because let's be honest, what sales all about? People. Who are they? What do they stand for? What presses or buttons? So do they have they have they went and find out anything about me and my company? And then the third one is what's the what's they like on a phone when a when a customer or client saying no no but this you know an issue a problem or a, you know where they have to come up with a solution on their feet mm-hmm. that that you can't teach that you know that's an attitude that's somebody who's got drive. Yeah, I agree. But do you think that having multiple interviews? If I'm and if an organisation gives you multiple interviews, do you think it's beneficial? Yes. Why? Because you okay. So there's not not such a thing as a bad employee, Michelle. There, it doesn't exist. There's a bad hire, right? So if you don't do your homework up front and they turn out a problem employee, and generally it doesn't happen the first three months. Normally it's something that happens over time. So. Surely it's better spending that time at the start to make sure, let's say, for example, Michelle, let's say I hire you, right? And my company isn't the right company for you. You know, we're very driven and, you know, let's go and we're very supportive and we're very driven by values and, you know, all, all these things that, you know, we are very value driven and your values and, our, and, and the company values are different. It won't work. It won't, doesn't matter. It, it, it will eventually not work. So surely you're better finding that up front so that it isn't a, because it's going to make you miserable. And that's why, by the way, that's why we have so many miserable employees in this world, because they're not in the right job or they don't have the right manager. Or they don't have the right, you know, that they, they haven't, there's not enough time spent on them. You know, for me, I want to find out what, what makes Michelle tick. What makes you tick? What makes you want to be here what makes you want to get up in the morning and then I want to make that important to me and I want to show you that I care and if I show you I care and you're the right type of employee it's a marriage made in heaven at least in my world it is anyway I agree I agree okay because there's a lot of opinion that the interview process is sometimes too long and then companies usually don't end up getting back to you that's a problem you should always, I personally, I don't, my HR team don't, I personally call and email every single client to say next or unfortunately and why. Okay. But then a, a lot of companies are getting a, um, maybe about three, 400 applicants for one job. Yeah, but I mean, if you're, you, should, you should have a process, though. If you're, if you're getting that many applications for a job, you should have somebody filtering them and then replying to people that are unsuccessful. But okay. people who go through the interview stage, let's say stage one, I thank everybody. I interview all of them. I speak to all of them, even if they're not being successful to go to the next phase. And I'll explain why. Okay, because I think giving feedback is quite important after an interview. One of our values, feedback. All feedback is good feedback. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you some of my questions. Go so did you, right. So did you have any role models in your career then? Yes. One of my biggest influences was a man called Alistair Sheikh. Alistair is 
oil and gas. He was the VP or one of my VP and director port manager. I think he's a non-executive director of a few big oil and gas companies up in Aberdeen. But his leadership style changed my life because he believed in me and he showed it and he showed that he cared. Even when I didn't believe in me, because remember, I was I, I went from field engineer to a manager. And then I went, literally within a year, I went from just a, a, a junior manager to a senior manager because Baker Hughes restructured. My manager lost his job, so the country director lost the job. I was promoted. I had a bloody clue what I was doing. But he believed in me and he came and says to me, here's why I'm offering you the job. And he was just an incredible leader. He this thing, like, if you went to his office, don't go to his office with problems. If you want to come and ask him, make sure you've got solutions. That was one of his big things. You come and run it past me if you want, but do not put your problem onto me. You think of the solutions, and then you can run them past me, and I'll help you come up with what we think the best one might be. Change, change the game for me. And then and that was Alistair Sheikh. Then the next one was a man called Halid Nu who was the vice president of Baker Hughes for Middle East, the whole of Middle East and, you know, Asia. He was my mentor. So I actually went and said to him, look, there's lots of traits and characteristics that I think you do amazingly. Well, lots that he didn't, but lots that he did. And I asked him, would you be okay, you know, if you became my mentor? So I was quite ballsy. I would just go out there and just go for it, you know, what, what, I have nothing to lose. So yeah, he became my mentor for two or three years. And I learned a lot. A lot of good things that I that I really like, things that I was maybe not so much, but I, I put my own spin on it, and and that helped me build my own leadership style. Okay, no, they sound like great people actually. It's amazing though. In in fifty, I've been you know how many years have I been working? So since I was seventeen, so in thirty odd years of working, I've only got two people that I would consider people that I looked up to in terms of business. Mm-hmm. Both of them lot happened to be in the same company. <laughs> Other than that, I, there was none. They were the only two. Oh, wow, that is amazing. It shows how how brilliant they are. Yeah. What is the most challenging thing about your current role, and how do you handle it? People go back to people. People are the most challenging thing. You know, when you build a business, so we meet me and my wife set this coming up. There's only two of us. Yes, it was really difficult. I mean, the first few years is really really hard. You just keep building and building and building and you start hiring and bringing on more people. So people can be very challenging because everybody's got different characteristics and different traits, different needs, different wants, different things that make them happy. Some people have got kids and that's their, their kind of life. So we always need to make sure that our company meets those values at all times. Yep. But they also understand that we are, you know, our company is very high performance driven. So we want everybody to be on their top game. And sometimes people can't be, and that's just life. So then we need to be empathetic, Mm -hmm. to be understanding. We need to say, you know what? Why don't you take a couple of days off and just go and chill and just go sort your stuff out? That's hard sometimes when you're under deadline. Because ultimately, I've got to make sure everybody gets their salaries, everybody's paid, they all get their bonuses. So it's quite difficult to be a business owner. But it's becoming easier because you hire more senior people and you pass some of that responsibility down. But again, that's why hiring based on values is really important. 
because if they've got the same values as you have and the companies are built upon, then it's, it's easy conversations. I don't know if I'm, I make sense on yeah, that. Yeah, I do. People, people are the hardest. It's definitely managing and, and, and you know, because you want to keep the, you want to keep people going. You know, we all have those peaks and troughs, and it's my job as a leader to make sure they understand the vision. You know why we're doing what we do. So the why, they understand the what, and they understand the how. That's my job. It is. It is. It's good that you have a lot of empathy in your company because a lot of, especially when you're trying to meet deadlines and targets, it can be hard. You can a lot of companies just. Uh, try and move forward as best they can all the time. Yeah, listen, see when we get employees, I mean, honestly, Michelle, see when an employee is not performing, I understand. We all have bad days. We all have bad weeks. We have bad months sometimes. And it's okay. But here's the real value. See when you show them that you understand and you care. See that next month, all of a sudden they've got a new drive. They've got a new determination. Because it's like, think about it this way. We call it the, the law of service, right? A, 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 when someone holds a door open for you, what do you do with the person behind you? You open a door. You hold open door for the next person. Exactly. So that's how I manage and I lead. I hold the door open and say, look, come. And guess what they do when I need to walk through the door? They will hold it open for me. Yeah, good. Good incentive. That's yeah. good. So how does your current career compare to what your aspirations were as a young boy? I would probably say exceeded. I never, ever, ever imagined that, A, because I, I was bought in Glasgow, working class, you know, get a job, get a trade if you can, and you work for the rest of your life with that company. That was kind of how I was brought up. But I didn't have that mindset. I was quite driven. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. I've thought about it a lot. My dad was a hard-working man. It might have been work ethic. Um, but I've always been very, you know, single-minded. Kind of, I always was able to look at people and think, they're only really good at that because they've put in the time and effort. So if I put in the time and effort, I'll be really good too. That was kind of how my mind worked. And things that I didn't enjoy, I didn't put the effort in. I thought, yeah, I don't like that. So I, I, I'm not going to waste my time on that. I'm going to waste my time on this because this is what I really like and this is what I really enjoy. So the answer is exceeded the expect. Even my business today, even though I set the vision of becoming the number one leadership development company in the UK, and you know we're we're well on track to to be that company, I still there's always something inside you that kind of thinks ah you're maybe just dreaming too much, but we're now starting to see that fruition. You know we're winning awards. You know we're we've been voted the the, the number the top fiftieth fifth we're number fifty of companies in the UK for small businesses. So in six years we've came a long long way, and that's down to you know the way that we manage, the way that we lead, how we treat our customers, how we act all the time. So I, you know I think I have exceeded my own expectations. Yes, you were saying before. That you can overdream. Do you really think that you can overdream? No, no. I, 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 so I'm going back to when you first said. So it's like it's a human nature. You know, we are very ne- all humans. All humans are negative. We're born with you know our six emotions. We're born with six universal emotions. Four of them are negative. Why? Because they kept they help us. They help to survive. Yeah. 
So, because when you go back, you know, millions of years, if you believe in evolution, you know, we evolved. We were the bottom of the food chain. So anything negative kept us alive. Our brains still work the same way, Michelle. So we're very, think about the news. What's most, what's 90, 90% of what you hear in the news is negative. Yeah, that's right. So if you watch the news and you read newspapers, guess what? You're just feeding that negativity. Yeah. So for, for me, I forgot the bloody question now. Go, give me the question again. <laughs> I think the question was, can you over, can you dream too big? Over dream, yeah. Over so, dream, yeah. It's because we're very negative biased that when we set those big goals, and I don't care what anybody says, when they first set that big, huge vision, there's something inside them going, oh, go. You know, you something inside you really questioning it. But don't change it. This is the key. Never ever stop having that vision. And and it's and then and because it gives you something to aim for. Yeah. I think there's a saying, you know, uh, shoot for the, the, the moon or shoot for the, the stars. If you miss, you'll hit the moon or something like that. So the problems with human beings is it's not that we aim too high, it's that we aim too low and succeed. Interesting. Okay. No, I like that question. I like that answer. That's really insightful. It was. It was really insightful. I can relate as well, somewhat, a bit. Have you ever had any career disasters? And how, how have you handled them? Lots. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots. Particularly, when I, I suppose, when I was younger. Because I was, as I said, big dreamer. Always been a dreamer. Always get bored really easy. But owning it, see, for me, it's, it's absolutely all about accountability. Even, listen, Michelle, even when we have employee problems like customer facing, I don't blame the employee. I blame me because I, I, I ask myself, what have I said or not said? What am I doing or not doing that makes them think that that's okay? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I always, I'm very accountable, in, you know, for my own actions. Um, so I, there's no regrets in any of the things I've done, but absolutely lots of disasters. But I've learned from them. I've learned from all of them. Yeah, I think it's the most important thing that you learn from your your disasters, or you never really fully move forward. Totally. Yeah. What is your zone of genius? Zone of genius? What are you excellent at? I don't know if I'm excellent at anything. I think I am bloody good at what I do. I think when I teach or when I train... I am very engaging. I really believe in people's potential. I have an absolute unwavering belief that everyone has unlimited potential. Absolutely believe in everything. However, some people are just not suited to certain things, and that's okay. I think so. That's my superhero. That's my my is the, my belief in people. I really do have a lot of belief, self belief in people. Probably my strength, and I absolutely love seeing transformation in businesses and people. I love seeing trans. I love seeing the little light coming on. I love it. Ah, there's no, it's probably selfish, but there's no feeling in the world, you know, if I'm sitting a business owner or sitting in a group or sitting in a group of CEOs and we're talking about what we do and motivational intelligence and how it, how it works and our belief systems and you see little lights coming on. That is incredible. I think it might be quite selfish, but it's bloody incredible. No, it sounds amazing, actually. Is there anything you still want to achieve in your career? Absolutely. 
want to be the number one leadership development company in the UK. We want to be, when someone says leadership development, we want everybody to say, go to that motivational intelligence company. I think their name's the power within. They're the company that's going to help you. Because I honestly believe, Michelle, I mean, think about it. Have you ever been on a leadership course before, Michelle? I have been, yes. It was quite a few years ago. Most of them revolve around emotional intelligence. Yeah, that's right. right. We don't, now we do talk about emotional intelligence. We don't, we are motivational intelligence, which is the number one because it's your motivations that drive your emotions. Yeah. There's uh-huh. something in there that most people don't understand. I think that MQ, motivational intelligence or MQ, will be as widely known and spoken about as EQ is today, five to 10 years from now. And but with us being the leader, leader in it and, and, you know, pushing it, that the default of that is we will be that company, I believe. I was going to ask you, what's the difference between EQ and MQ? So EQ is emotional intelligence, right? It's, it's yeah. your ability to handle your emotional state yeah. in different situations. It's also your ability to read other people's emotional state and act accordingly. So that's emotional intelligence. So when I, i.e., you know, when someone comes up and says to you, gives you feedback, okay, let's go back to feedback. Now, we are programmed to not like feedback because if I came up to you and worked and says, hi, Michelle, is it okay if I give you a bit of feedback? Your internal alarms are going off. Whoa, whoa, danger, danger. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that's emotional intelligence because we're programmed that way. So that's the emotional. Motivational intelligence, however, is different. Motivational intelligence is our abilities to manage negative thoughts and self-limiting beliefs in order to overcome the obstacles that we face in life and achieve our goals. So our brains work, there's three levels of intelligence. So you've got your motivational intelligence or reptilian brain. So you've got three brains. You've got emotional intelligence and then you've got intellectual quotation IQ. Motivation drives emotion and emotion triggers IQ. However, if the MQ like the danger, the fight or flight, you know, you've heard of the fight or flight. If the flight, the fight or the flight is high enough, your emotion is to sweat, panic and run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's how do you manage that fight or flight? How can you reprogram your brain? By the way, remember, everything that we do, our, our, our core values, our emotions, everything is learned behaviours. So because they've learned, they're learned behaviours, you can also unlearn them. And you can learn new behaviours. You know, I think you've probably heard the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, it's bullshit. It doesn't exist. I started my business when I turned 44, nearly 45. It's nonsense. I knew nothing about this until I started my company. But I had a dream and I had a vision and I had a passion for helping people, you know, reach that unlimited potential, you know, but, you know, go on and do great things. I'm learning every day and I'm an old dog. I was going to ask you a question, actually. I've seen being talked about, especially on LinkedIn, that about whether a company views you, your company would view you as a flight risk. Because I've heard that a lot of some, some of their companies would ask, would maybe approach them and say, oh, we maybe think that you're a flight risk. You, may, you know, they might you know, think about leaving because they're so good and they've got good skills and so valuable. How can companies actually manage that? 
Easy. Every employee in your company should be a flight risk. They should be good enough to load, to go go out and you know do it. But the key is this: we are we don't leave for money. I mean, it's you know there's a million studies. We do not leave companies for money. We leave because of bad managers, bad leadership, or no career progression. So if you make sure that Michelle is looked after, she believes that you believe about and her and you care and that you have career progression and there's something there for her, why would you want to leave? You obviously have to pay them, you know, well as you don't expect somebody to do a you know a, a five-star job and pay them three-star salary. You know, so so, you, mm. so it's, it's, uh, you've got everything. However, money is not why people leave positions. There's normally something else. Most people will say they're leaving for money. Yeah. So, for example, some people will go to their companies and say, oh, I've been offered a new position. Oh, I'm getting X amount. Yeah. And the company, yeah. the, other, the company will say, oh, no, I'll offer you that. I'll give you a little bit more and they stay. They're never going to be happy. Eventually, they'll leave because there was a reason why they wanted to leave in the first place. Now, it might have been that they weren't paid enough. So they were overworked and underpaid. That's a problem. That's a manager problem. That's a leader problem. So as long as you look at all those things, compensation, career development, you know, opportunity, people, we, humans, we want to belong. And as long as you feel like you're contributing to that vision and that goal and something bigger than you, we are generally satisfied. But we've got social needs, we've got financial needs, you know, that, that also play a huge part. You know, if you think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the security, they're all needs that need to be met before we have self-actualization. So it's about really understanding, for me, really understanding who, why, when, where, how. Okay, going on from that, I just wondered, what is your opinion on companies that maybe do approach a candidate with a five-star job, but only offering three to two star salary don't go don't go or, or but, but, so there's a key here so let's say they make like for a startup business now startup businesses generally cannot compensate the same as a multinational right however what they can say is look this is who we are this is where we're going michelle i want you to be part of that journey here's the career progression here's where so it might be something that, Okay, maybe you're not going to be making five-star wages, but you are going to love what you do. You can still pay the bills, you can still have a life, and you've got great opportunities. Then I still think that's fair enough. I think so too, because now everything does come down to, to money. Obviously, everybody has to pay their bills and they want to be able to live live a relatively good life. But I think more and more people are looking for just a company that appreciates what they do. Absolutely. Who do you depend on most in your work? Yeah, was going. Yeah, okay. Because we're business partners. She's oper- she, she, she's the operations director, so she literally manages all the people. And I'm more of the visionary, the creator. You know, I I I, I do the kind of the the, the, the vision of the business, the the that that, that the building mm. and my wife actions all of those plans. Not she's incredible. She's absolutely incredible. You know, I think we need much more women in in, in leadership than we have right now. Just a personal opinion. I think so too. There is no. But I want I want women to bring the female of them in. 
because what you find in a lot of a lot of is when the, when a woman starts to grow because they have to fight they, they, they take on a lot of male characteristics you know that toughness I don't think it has to be like that I want to see women bringing in, bringing the empathy bringing the understanding you know when they become leaders in, in organizations don't always be that hard nose you know tough because because I don't think leaders have to be like that I don't think so either no we still need to make tough decisions. Don't get me wrong, because at the end of the day, the ball stops at our feet. But it doesn't have to be that whole, what we imagine, you know, a manager tells us what to do. That's wrong. A leader leads us. Leaders make us believe in ourselves. And we want to do what it takes when somebody leads. We follow. Yeah, that's true. We do. We do follow if we have a, if we have a good leader. That's correct. What keeps you motivated when things get tough? The vision. Simply the vision, the vision of what we're doing. Because, I mean, it get, when you're a business owner, there's a lot of tough days, you know, a lot of tough decisions, a lot of growth decisions. But I, I luckily, I think I don't look at see anything that's tough, right? This is this is how my mind works. If it's tough, I'm learning. If there's or, 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 there's an opportunity, when something's tough, that means that I'm learning. You know, when I get that feeling in my tummy that the butterflies, I know that I'm learning something. I know that I'm outside my comfort zone. You know, when things, we'll call it, excuse the language, but when shit hits the fan and things are not going, I automatically think opportunity. What can I learn from this? What can I get out of this? What can I find? And by the way, I've built my business on exactly that. I've had probably more, and you've probably heard this before, I've had more no's building this business than any yeses I think I'll ever have in the future. And it's the no's that kept me going. Yeah, because to me, a no is just an unanswered yes. It means that I haven't found out what the right path, the right tick. I haven't, there's something I need to learn to find, to ch- change that no into a yes. Okay, interesting. Right, I've got another question for you. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? No, nothing, nothing. In fact, my advice to young people are, in those first few years, enjoy yourself. You know, have goals in life. I think most people, the problem with with goals, Michelle, is most people don't understand goals, right? That's why, you know, people who set New Year's resolutions, most of them have failed by the time they hit the end of January, yeah? Because people don't understand what a goal is. They think it's this, you know, thing that I need to achieve it's not it's not a goal is is the end you know this is what I would like to achieve the the, the real key is what or the, the the things that you do in between so the little steps you know remember compound interest little things done over again to consistently achieves great results that that for me is is I wish someone had taught me that at a younger age but enjoy life absolutely I mean our, we one of our by the way one of our uh, core values is Fun, laugh. We laugh, even when even when things are going wrong. We're constantly having a laugh about it. We know our team meetings on a Monday. We have so much fun, even when we're talking about serious stuff. We we really have a lot of fun. No, that's really good. Sounds like you have a really good envir- working environment. I was going to ask you off the back of that. When do you think? Because a lot of the graduates are coming out, they're coming out, they're try, they're really stressed to get their first job. Some might even think that it will never happen, then it probably happens like the blue as always. 
when do you think it's appropriate for them to make their first their first maybe five year plan about where they're gonna go? Straight away. Straight away. So let 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 let's let's talk about career progression. You will never get a job until you do something about it. Plain and simple. If you want a job, you need to do your homework about who you want to do, who you want to work for, what they're looking for, and you need to make sure that you either A, have it, or B, go learn it. Yep. So what is it that people want? What are they looking for? What, who, who's at the ideal company? Go find out about the company. Go learn about them. What do they do? What kind of people work there? Why would I want to be there? For me, it's always about, you know, if you sit and wait for something to happen, it will never, ever happen. And that's for young graduates. You know, if a young graduate came to me and they said, hi, James, been really following you on LinkedIn, love your company, you know, I love this, I love that, da, 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 and they start talking about my company. First of all, what does that tell me? They yeah, give a shit. Yeah, they've done yeah. their homework, yeah. Secondly, they've got the the audacity to actually come to me direct and say, well, even if it's a phone call. So they're going to perk my interest. Now, I'll probably hire them even if I'm not looking. I'll probably hire them and say, you know what, I don't have a position, but let's come. We'll find something for you. So for me, you know, and obviously there's there's lots of different reasons why people can't get a job. But for me, it's always about how bad do you... Here's, here's a saying for you. This is one of my, my quotes. It's in the want to that you find the how to in life. If you want something bad enough, you will find a way to get it. But the problem with most people is they don't have a draft drive and enough want to get the how. And that's not a bad thing. It's just because most people don't know. I mean, I could literally spend an hour with a graduate. They would leave leave a conversation with me and I, I, they would probably go find a job within a month because I wouldn't accept any excuses. I would say, no, 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 no. But if you could do that, what would that be, Michelle? And if you could do that, what would that look like? Oh, well, I think if I could, I would probably, okay, go do that then. Do that first. And then all of a sudden they start having a bit of self-belief. And then you just keep doing it and just keep doing it. And that, for me, is the key. Because there's lots and lots of jobs out there. There is. So is there any other advice that you have for any new graduates looking for work? I would probably say the key is, honestly, get a goal. Find what, Who do you want to work for? Get your top two or three companies. Do your homework. Write letters. Write emails. Go on LinkedIn. Send them a, do a video on LinkedIn, post it to them. Annoy them. Eventually, somebody will give you an opportunity. It's in the want to that you find a how to. If you want it bad enough, you will find a way. Because I do think a lot of uh, graduates don't don't put enough emphasis on their LinkedIn profile. Because I think that's, nowadays, that would be quite important for them to be seen and heard. Imagine this, right? Let me give you an imagine this scenario. So, young graduate goes on, creates a video, who they are, where they graduated, who they want to, what they'd love to do, the type of work they would love, and ask for help live on LinkedIn. They do a video and they say, I'm just looking for a job. I will guarantee you by the end of the week they will have a job. Send the want to. You find the how to. Interesting. This is the best interview yet, actually. I just have to say that. Of course it is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank James for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. 
Thanks for listening and see you next week. See you later. Bye. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.